You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Thank y'all for being here. Um, We are in week four of this four-part series, and I was thinking this morning that as much as I was kind of... um, resistant to teaching like I was I'm really sad that it's over but um anyway because I've really enjoyed preparing and teaching and sharing um this so thank you for being here um let me pray for us and then we'll dig in heavenly father gracious lord um I just pray now that um there would be less of me and more of you um that my words would be your words and through them you would be glorified I pray it all in Jesus name amen Okay, so by way of just kind of a quick review, we've looked at two of Jesus's three predictions of his suffering, death, and resurrection, um, otherwise known as his passion, and we call it that um, because of a Latin word that means to endure or suffer. And so in early translations, Latin translations of the Bible, they use this word to describe the time of from Jesus's time in Gethsemane all the way to the cross. So that's why we call it his passion. Um, Jesus has made these predictions to solidify his identity as the Messiah for his disciples, but also so that his disciples will be able to understand what's happening when the time comes. But more than just preparing his disciples for his trial and his crucifixion and his resurrection, following each one of these predictions, Jesus also teaches to prepare his disciples for the rest of their lives as his followers reorienting their understanding of how things work from a worldly perspective to a kingdom perspective. So far, his disciples haven't really tried to understand. So far, they've either argued with Jesus or just avoided the subject altogether. So we come to Jesus's third and final passion prediction, um, and this one has an extra bonus cost of discipleship lesson um, as the thing that prompts this final foretelling. Like the others, um, Peter's confession and the disciples' inability to heal the demon-possessed boy. Hey, Sarah Catherine. Hey, Daniel. Hey, Scott. Um... Like Peter's confession and the disciples' inability to heal the demon-possessed boy, this one shows the disciples and us our inability to save ourselves and our need for Jesus. So, um, I've got kind of long scripture this week, so bear with me. Um, This comes from Mark 10. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. 
But again, Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So, We hear about this man. In other accounts, he's called the rich young ruler. And he approaches Jesus with his resume, basically. He's ready to sign up. The man asks Jesus what more he needs to do, but he's really already assuming his approval. He's just, you know, thinking that maybe, if not, he can get it buttoned up with just a few more checks in the righteousness boxes. Um, But Jesus demands of the young man the one thing he isn't ready to do. So, Scripture tells us that the man goes away sad because he isn't willing to part with all of his stuff. And the disciples are amazed. But why? I mean, after all of Jesus' teaching about denying yourself, first being last and least being greatest, how is this still surprising to the disciples? Again, Jesus leaves his disciples shaking their heads. Hey, Sharon. This guy was fantastic. He had amazing references. His credentials were superb. Who then, Jesus, can be saved? Jesus' response to the disciples here sets up his final prediction of his passion. With man, it is impossible, but not for God. For all things are possible with God. And you know, I was rereading this this week. And, and I thought about that. I was like, oh my goodness, think about where else in Scripture we hear this, right? With man it is impossible, but not for God. With God, all things are possible. Remember with Sarah? Do you remember with Mary? So both times, these were times of new life, right? And this is exactly what Jesus has said here. Um, God making the impossible possible making a way where there was no way. Um, To fulfill his plan for redemption, Jesus, ever making intentional use of the teachable moment, uses this episode to remind his disciples, you can't, but I can, and I'm about to tell you how. Again. And Peter, oh Peter, jumps in here to be sure that Jesus hasn't forgotten that he has, in fact, left everything behind. Now, I'm not clear here, and Scripture's not clear, whether Peter wants credit or if he's just making sure that he's not going to be left empty-handed at the end of all of this. But regardless, Jesus doesn't tell him to hush and quit being an ungrateful chucklehead. Instead, we read in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus promises the Twelve that when the world is made new and the Son of Man is seated on his glorious throne, they will be there with him each on his own throne, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
Jesus assures his disciples that all they have given up and will give up cannot be compared to what they will gain both now and for eternity in following him. And now Jesus warns his disciples for the third and final time. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. So we read that they were going up to Jerusalem. Now remember, I'm going to backtrack more nerdiness. You guys that have been here have already learned this about me. So remember, we started up here with Peter's confession in Caesarea Philippi, right? And then we were down here in Mount Tabor for the transfiguration and at the foot of the mountain is where there was the demon-possessed boy that the disciples couldn't heal. Jesus had to heal and this was a big faith issue. So they're headed to Jerusalem. So they're here and it says that they're going up to Jerusalem. So this isn't the gospel writer's confusion about cardinal directions. This is an issue of terrain and topography. Jerusalem's only about 20 miles from Jericho. But it's 3,500 feet higher in elevation, so you're always going up to Jer- I mean, up to Jerusalem. And isn't it interesting? Do you remember in part one where we talked about all of those covenants that God made with His people on the third day, and they all happened on mountains on higher ground? Jesus heads up to Jerusalem, where God will make a new covenant with humanity to forgive sins and restore fellowship through Jesus. So Jesus and the crowd are going up to Jerusalem. This is it. And Jesus is leading with purpose and direction. His face set like a flint in perfect obedience to God the Father, perfect knowledge of prophetic scripture, and personal omniscience about what is to come. And at the same time, Jesus also faces humiliation and suffering and death as a human. I mean, think about that for a minute. I think sometimes I forget that because Jesus was fully divine, he's just all good with what's coming. And I forget that also being fully human, Jesus feels all the same things that we feel. And of course, we see this vividly at Gethsemane. And what's the mood among those following? Scripture tells us they are amazed and afraid. It's getting real, and Jesus keeps saying things they don't get and they don't like. And I think about it like, do you remember when you were little and your mom told you that you were going to have to go to the doctor and you were going to have to get a shot and you knew it was going to happen, but you like really, really hope the whole way there and the whole time that you're waiting (laughs) that maybe it just really didn't happen? I kind of wonder if this is how the disciples were feeling at this point. So Jesus gathers the twelve in closely again. And he emphasizes, see, here we go. We're going, like I've been saying. And when we get there, all that stuff I've been warning you about, well, it's really going to happen. Just as I've said, the arrest, the flogging, the spitting, the beating, and the killing. But it will be okay. 
I am coming back and I will make everything okay. Jesus' third prediction most closely reflects the language of the suffering servant passages, and it also includes the most details. Again, Jesus refers to himself as son of man, still trying to help his friends connect the dots that the suffering servant walking to the cross is the all-conquering victor and king of his eternal kingdom. So in this final prediction, we see that Jesus gets much more specific. Jesus tells the disciples where they're going to Jerusalem, and he tells them who. So he tells them first, it's the Jews, his own people, the chief priests and scribes, who will condemn him to death. But then he tells them that the Gentiles are whose hands um, under which Jesus will suffer pain and humiliation and finally death. Now being delivered over to the Gentiles is significant. Under Roman authority, the Jews were not permitted to enforce the death penalty. But remember, there's a greater significance to this being delivered over, this paradidomai. This was a word we talked about last time. This divine passive, it reminds us that it is God who is doing the handing over for his power and his use. Men are involved, for sure, but only in carrying out God's plan, not their own. This is Jesus being sent according to God's will outside of the covenant community as a scapegoat being cast out by the Jews. Jesus is being clear that God has laid the road and the plan that Jesus will accomplish. This is not a good idea gone south. This is how God, in his amazing grace, sovereignly and providentially ordained to rescue his lost children. Jesus' followers are afraid. They're confused, and they're probably wondering what their association with this character might mean for them when they get to Jerusalem. Remember that until now, the detail Jesus has not included has been the method of his execution. While Matthew specifically mentions this detail in his account, Jesus' revelation in this prediction that the Romans will be the ones to put him to death would clue his followers in to what sort of death it would be. But the detail that has been consistent in each prediction and yet consistently ignored by his disciples is the most important one. The assurance that in three days Jesus will rise again. Maybe the disciples would have felt better if they could have pictured God waiting for them on the other side of the cross. So the disciples are afraid and amazed, but once again, they don't ask any questions or engage Jesus in any discussion about this confusing and terrifying news. Instead, we read this. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now John Stott has called this request of James and John's the most self-centered prayer ever. <laughs> Peter must have been busy checking his Twitter feed or something because he sits this one out. James and John, who are also part of Jesus' inner circle, fill the gap. 
So Jesus has just reiterated what awaits him in Jerusalem, and James and John don't miss a beat in asking for premium seating in Jesus' throne room. So this would be like me sharing some really terrible news with my husband and him responding by asking me to fix him a meatloaf. Read the room. But the disciples don't. And notice the way James and John ask. I mean, they're kind of sneaky too, right? Like they know it's wrong. But Jesus doesn't answer. Are you kidding me? The way I would. Jesus deals with our weakness with immeasurable patience and amazing grace. Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? The question that sets up his intended teaching. See, the disciples want glory, but Jesus explains to them that word does not mean what they think it means. When James and John request to sit with Jesus in his glory, they are imagining an earthly kingdom where they will be Jesus' chief advisors. They are seeking their own glory through power, position, and prestige. But glory, according to the biblical witness, is something altogether different. In his book, Tell It Slant, Eugene Peterson writes, Glory means that something magnificent is going on, is coming together, something that has to do with God and us. It is a word that gathers to a greatness all the bits and pieces of our lives into the wholeness and completion of Jesus' life. Glory, Peterson says, is a resurrection word. The roots of glory are in death and burial. The picture the disciples have of entering Jerusalem is very different than the one Jesus has been describing. The disciples are still trying to fit Jesus into their plans rather than seeking to understand Jesus' teaching, which describes the plan God wrought for humanity's salvation before the world began. Jesus responds by pointing out James and John's limited understanding. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but is for those for whom it has been prepared. James and John confidently say they are able to drink the cup Jesus will drink and be baptized with the same baptism as Jesus, but they don't even know what they're claiming to be able to do. This is what happens when you don't ask questions. In the Old Testament, references to the cup symbolize something allotted by God. It can be joy or prosperity, like my cup runneth over from Psalm 23. But more often, the image of the cup is a metaphor for God's wrath and judgment. The words Jesus uses here for the cup and baptism mean to be immersed, flooded, plunged into, overwhelmed by the cup of God's wrath. 
Drinking the cup means Jesus will fully undergo a particular experience, a significant and unique way charted for him by God. It is the way his atoning ransom will be achieved. This is the cup that will soon represent Jesus' blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. James and John have no idea what they're asking. Even Jesus, who is in on God's plan, feels the tremendous weight of what it means to drink the cup. John 12:27 finds Jesus saying, Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? And at Gethsemane, we hear Jesus say, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. But because Jesus is the new Adam and perfect Israel, because Jesus was the only one to be tempted in every way and yet not sin, because Jesus is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets, because he is the Son of God and the Son of Man, Jesus is the only one for whom it is possible to drink the cup, and Jesus will drink it on the cross in a free act of obedience. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So what does Jesus mean then when he says that James and John will drink the cup he will drink and be baptized with the same baptism? When Jesus says this, it is a renewed call to discipleship, a reminder to his disciples of the consequences of following him. Discipleship involves sacrifice and suffering. And while they will not drink the cup that leads to the atonement for sins, Jesus' disciples will suffer persecution for spreading the gospel and building his church. James and John want glory in the kingdom, but they still see glory in their own terms and hope to achieve it in their own power. But glory in the kingdom is incongruent with our earthly view of glory. I mean... When Jesus is in glory on the cross, who's at his right and left? It's the criminals, right? The disciples wanted glory in the kingdom, but when the trial came, they all ran for their lives. Eugene Peterson writes, This is glory that doesn't look like glory. Glory that to all appearances is unrecognizable as glory. Not brightness, but night. Not celebrity, but mockery. Glory as death and death as glory is not an easy or comfortable truth to take in. But for those of us who follow Jesus, it is absolutely central for first understanding and then participating in the glory that is our salvation and the salvation of the world. Jesus' disciples are still trying to do it their own way. Jesus' way is the way of the cross. Before a crown, there's a cup. Before blessing, there's a baptism that overwhelms and drowns. Before raising to new life. With man, it is impossible, but not for God. For with God, all things are possible. And so now, finally, the disciples say, Wait, Jesus, we don't understand. This doesn't make sense to us, and we're so sorry. But frankly, we haven't really been paying attention to a lot of what you've been saying. Please help us understand. No, they don't. 
the ten disciples are ticked off either by James and John's audacity in asking to sit at Jesus' right and left or that they didn't think of it first. Even with the cross in view, we say, I want it my way. So Jesus huddles them back up for another lesson about how the kingdom of heaven works. Not so with you, Jesus says. Selfish ambition leads to fighting, division, and disunity. This is how the authorities and powers of the world behave, but I'm not having it, Jesus says. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Even I, even God, even the one who will give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus has told his disciples three times that he will die and rise again. And now he tells them why and what he will accomplish through it. Jesus will give his life as a ransom for many. Now we know the word ransom um, is used as a term to describe a payment made to free a prisoner or emancipate a slave. Well, the word that's used here for ransom indicates that Jesus' death will do something. Now the Jewish people were accustomed to the sacrificial system where animals were sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people over and over, year after year. <clears throat> On the cross... Jesus will purchase us with his blood, setting us free from the slave masters of sin and death once for all, ending the need for a perpetual sacrifice. And who does Jesus say will do this? Again, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, clearly linking the mighty sovereign king coming out of heaven with the suffering servant of Isaiah's prophecies. Same guy, Jesus says, and, and the reason I'm going to suffer is you. I will suffer and die for you. I will give myself over to the chief priests and scribes and the Roman authorities in your place. Suffer the death sentence you deserve. But then, then I will rise again in glory, giving you an all-access pass to the Father and the gift of eternal life. Why? just because you're mine, and I love you. And then they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. <coughs> Excuse me. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. 
So Jesus and his disciples enter Jericho, next stop Jerusalem. On the way out of town, they encounter a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. And I want you to notice a few things about this encounter. How does Bartimaeus address Jesus? And he cries out to him, right? He wants to get his attention. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus is physically, literally blind. He cannot see anything. But he sees who Jesus is more clearly than the, than the religious leaders and even Jesus' own disciples. How do we know? Crowds of people would have been traveling on this road headed to Jerusalem for the Passover. Picture Disney World at spring break, like lots of crowds. If you couldn't see, it had to seem like absolute chaos. Bartimaeus couldn't have thought he had much of a chance of attracting Jesus' attention. But Bartimaeus knows this is his big chance. He can't let it pass. He cries out to Jesus with urgency and persistence. Next, we see that Bartimaeus calls Jesus son of David. So this is from a prophecy in 2 Samuel 7 that said Messiah had to come from the lineage of David. Matthew 1 gives genealogical proof that Jesus in humanity was a direct descendant of Abraham and King David through Joseph, Jesus' legal father. Son of David is a title of royalty and a messianic title signifying Jesus is the Christ, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And Bartimaeus' request, have mercy on me, is a stark contrast to Jesus' disciples arguing over who is the greatest, or James and John arguing about who gets to ride shotgun next to Jesus. Bartimaeus is keenly aware he has no business asking Jesus for anything but mercy. And when Jesus summons Bartimaeus, we read, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. No hesitation. This is a guy who recognizes his absolute poverty and his incomplete ability and his complete inability to do anything about his condition. He throws off his cloak, likely the only thing that he owns. It's the only thing he owns and he just dumps it. Because unlike the rich young ruler, he knows there is nothing that he can possess that compares to the immeasurable riches found of having his life in Jesus Christ. So Bartimaeus isn't the only one. Jesus' passion predictions are bookended by two stories of Jesus healing the blind. Not a demon possession in a blind guy or a leper in a blind guy, specifically two healings of blind men. Now the two healings are different. Bartimaeus is healed immediately, but the first guy, not so much. It takes Jesus two tries for this guy to gain 20-20 vision. And of course, we know it isn't because Jesus' healing powers were rusty or his taco dinner the night before interfered with the healing properties of his saliva. We know that's not it. The first healing happens following a couple of different episodes where the disciples are especially thick not perceiving or understanding, not remembering what they've already seen Jesus do or what they've heard him teach. 
The two-step healing of the first blind man is meant to show us that the disciples' eyes will also be opened in stages. They will not understand all at once who Jesus is. And when do the disciples finally understand? How are they finally able to see who Jesus is? So after his resurrection, but it's important to note how. The disciples see Jesus for who he really is when Jesus speaks Mary's name outside of the tomb, when Jesus appears to the disciples inside the locked room, when Jesus recites the scriptures and breaks bread with two disciples on the road to, to Emmaus, when the risen Jesus reveals himself to his disciples in these ways, scripture tells us their eyes were opened. We cannot heal our spiritual blindness any more than Jesus' disciples could. Sight comes to the blind by faith through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not all at once, and not perfectly, until Jesus returns in glory. That's why the subtitle of this final class is, Now I Can See, sort of. This side of heaven, we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, then we will know, even as we are fully known. Jesus' passion predictions are part of a multi-step healing of his disciples' spiritual blindness, healing them of their sin of pride, jealousy, ambition, and self-sufficiency. Jesus sees the heavy burden his friends are carrying, the law that tells them they must be winner, greatest, and best. And Jesus teaches them that that is the way of death that leads to death. All along the way to Jerusalem, through his predictions and teachings, Jesus is gospeling his disciples. On the road to the cross, Jesus teaches the twelve to repent of winner and greatest and best, and to follow him to the way of death that leads to life, the abundant life in Jesus Christ that comes when we pick up our cross and follow him. Any questions, comments? It's kind of reassuring just because disciples, like you said, they just don't get it. And I certainly don't, and it takes a hundred thousand times over and over again. I just go back and read the scripture. Amen. And remember what Jesus did for you, but it's even with them, you know, it just took a while. And it's still probably for all of us, it'll be the rest of our lives. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Thanks, Kate. There's sort of a sort of a cultural commentary you can thread through Bartimaeus. Yeah. And that Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. He has no first name because he is imperfect and he's barred from the temple. And his parents did not name him because of his imperfection. He did not get a given name. And he could not enter the temple because he was blind. But now that he is, he has his sight has been restored. He is open to the temple. The temple is open to him, mm. and he can he can participate not only in Jesus's glory, but he can participate in the life around him. Mm. Mm. That's a good word, coffee. Yeah, and he's he's met the true temple, right? And now he's walking he's with the true temple. Complete. Yeah. Thank you. Well, 
going back to your uh, the first story about the the rich young ruler, I love that, especially in our church. Um, people love people do almost anything that they can to rationalize that, you know, like pass through the needle, like, well, there was a gate called the needle and all this other stuff, you know, and they miss the whole other part of it where it's like, with man, it's hmm. impossible, but with God, nothing's impossible, and I just think that's the whole point, is that God does these things for, to reconcile, like, the irrefutable sin that we have that there's no other way to yeah. enter into relationship except through Jesus. Yep. Yeah. A way where there's no way. Yeah. Thanks well, for that. Old Testament, the, the John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God and all the things that happened, like you said, were revealed after he came back. And the, it's a time of the Passover and there I don't know that every Israelite understood why Moses said, Well, put this blood over mm. your home because the angel of death is going to come. <clears throat> uh, I'm not sure how they all just understood that. And, but through that, in the death of the lamb they, they killed, they had life. Mm-hmm. And they you know, went left, went to the promised land, took all the gold they could carry. And physically it was, you know, materially it was wonderful, but then they had to come to the promised land of milk and honey. So. They didn't, I don't think they all, I don't know, I wasn't there, but I, I didn't know the key. And the disciples, well, I think the, Peter in particular gets a bad rap, in my opinion, because all the other disciples were hidden, hiding in fear. He did have the courage to go, and John go, mm. to watch the trial. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But, well, he's, but he's, you know, most, most people can do, you know, are hard on him. Well, he was there, and they weren't. And then he was became one of the most uh, well-known of the disciples, I guess, carrying the gospel. I think Peter's, I mean, for me anyway, Peter's great because I'm Peter. I mean, you know, like that's me every day of my life. So I really appreciate his um, story and his witness. Thanks, John. Leslie, one last thing. John and I have watched the series The Chosen, Mm -hmm. and I don't know how many of you have, and it helped me visualize because I'm a visual person, you know, what the the human side of it really was. Because I keep thinking, didn't they recognize him? I mean, why would they ask that? But you really, it kind of brings it to life. Yeah. And if you haven't seen it, the first couple of episodes, you're like, this is terrible. <laughs> but keep going, and it really is good. And hang in there, yeah. Well, you know, I think that, I mean, I don't see it either, right? I mean, you know, so I can't, I can't throw shade at the disciples. I miss it all the time. So, all right. Well, thank y'all for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, thank you um, for this time, Lord, to um, dig into your word. And Lord, I just pray now that you would use um, your word to, um, that it would just pierce our hearts, Lord, and that you would use it to transform us. Um, to people that seek you in all things. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.